Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made an image of gold that was over 90 feet high, and he declared that when musicians would play certain instruments like a flute, a horn, a harp, and the like, that people were to bow down and worship that golden image. So anytime they heard certain music being played throughout the kingdom, they were to bow down and worship. And if anyone refused to do that, then the king's order was that the person that refused to worship the golden image would be thrown into a fiery furnace, a death penalty for refusing to worship the golden image. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know their story, they were Jewish men that had been taken captive years before, but had risen to a place of prominence in Nebuchadnezzar's empire. They loved the Lord their God, and they were not going to worship the gods of Babylon, and they especially were not going to worship this golden image. So when Nebuchadnezzar heard that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down and worship, he called them to himself, and he said, look, guys, I know that you're good guys, and I depend on you, and you've risen to a place of importance in my kingdom, but if you don't bow down and worship, you're dead. You will be thrown in the fiery furnace. Just listen to their reply to the king. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That's bold. If that is the case, that they'll be thrown in the fire, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Listen to this. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods. Nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they believe their God. They love their God. They were not going to worship any false God. But what's truly remarkable about their statement, it's not only that they said, we know our God will deliver us. It's not only that they had a faith that God could and he would, but they said, but if not. They said, if he doesn't, if it's not God's purpose to deliver us, we're okay with that as well. Most of you know the rest of the story, right? What happened? They didn't bow down. They didn't worship. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was so mad, he had the furnace stoked to seven times its normal heat to where the people that were throwing them in the furnace died just from the, the, the heat coming out of the furnace when it was open. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's always interesting to me if the people that were throwing them into the furnace died, who actually threw them into the furnace I don't know how that worked out, but they ended up in the furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar, and they were bound, and Nebuchadnezzar looks, expecting to see them burning, but they're just walking around in the fire. But not just three, there were four people. And so he says, okay, time out, I need to figure out what's going on. So he calls to them from the fire, he says, come on out, guys. He's like, obviously that didn't work. When they came out of the fire, their ropes were burned from their hands. They didn't even smell like smoke. Nothing on them was burned. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, what's going on? What he saw was something that looked like the Son of Man walking in the fire with them. And so when they came out of the fire, this is what Nebuchadnezzar said. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies again. But if not, king, we're not going to serve you. The king recognized they believe their God, even to the extent of laying down their lives. They've yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any God except their own God. 
Listen, my friends, there is something very powerful about a child of God that is willing to lay down their life for Jesus' sake. The world has never had an answer for the believer that is willing to lay it down. The world can't defeat that. The world can't overcome that. But I think that we make the mistake of thinking of stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are just about some special set of super Christians. Like, man, they really had it together, and so that's why they were able to do that kind of thing. That's why they were able to have that kind of faith. But actually, that type of faith should be what we would call the normal Christian life. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 17, 33. Just listen real quick. This, this is Jesus speaking. He says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. So I had to ask the question of myself this week. How much of my life do I spend trying to preserve my life? Trying to keep my life? When Jesus has told me that's the wrong way to go about it. Revelation 12, 11, which we'll get to much later. Someone joked today saying that this sermon series should end around Thanksgiving of 2022. We'll see. That may, that may be ambitious even that. I don't know. But Revelation 12, 11 says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And here's the third thing that we often forget. And they did not love their lives unto death. So why are we not supposed to hold tightly to the things of the world? Why are we to worship God even to the point where it could cost us our life? Why should that be a normal expectation for the believer? Well, Jesus, to me, is the answer to that in at least, for, at least two ways. First, Jesus came and did what? He came and laid down his life. And then he rose again from the grave and he looked at us and he said, Look, what I've done, you're to do. So I've given my life, so should you. But the second reason that we should <laughs> be prepared for this is that not only did Jesus die, but he rose again from the grave. So for the believer, listen, death is nothing to fear. Death is not the end. Jesus is our end. Jesus is our life. So even if we lay down our life in this world, all that means is that I get to finally see Jesus face to face. So I've titled today's sermon, To the End, To the End, and we'll be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. There's just four short verses that we're going to cover today. And what I want to do is I want to walk through these verses to really make sure we understand them. Then we're going to apply it more directly at the end. So let's begin with Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write these things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. So we understand the themes of Jesus being the first and the last, of Jesus being one who was dead and came to life. Those are very important themes of the book of Revelation. We looked at those pretty extensively in Revelation chapter 1. But there's actually a very specific relationship to that with the city of Smyrna that he's writing. Smyrna was not only kind of a first 
a beginning and the end type of city in Asia Minor at this time. But it's, well, it's the only city actually of the seven also that still has survived to this day. It's the modern city of Izmir. So out of the seven churches that the book of Revelation is addressed to, that's the only one that is still around. But in 600 B.C., the city had been completely destroyed. The city was dead. And so Jesus, the first and the last one who was dead and who was alive, is writing to the city that in 600 B.C. had died. The city had been destroyed by Adelies, the king of Lydia. But then Alexander the Great came along some 300 years later in 334 B.C. And Alexander the Great, the Great commissioned that the city be rebuilt. And so by 290 B.C., it had been rebuilt. It took many years. It actually was finished by Alexander's successors. And the city became known for its beautiful architecture. And the city was rebuilt in such a way that it became known as one of the most beautiful cities, architecturally speaking, in the ancient world. It began at the sea, and then it went up Mount Pergamos. And as you went up Mount Pergamos, it had a a street that was actually called the Golden Street because the way it was built and the way that the sun hit it. And so you, you go from the sea level up this mountain, the way the city was built, and as the road, the Golden Road, wrapped around the mountain, there were temples built to Greek gods. And so you'd see, and, and it, it basically it rose to where at the top was the uh, temple to Zeus. So it was kind of the lesser gods building up to the top of the mountain, Right? But what happened is if you were below and you looked up at this mountain, it looked like the mountain had a golden crown. If you look at the golden street with these temples and the rock and the stone that was glistening from the temples. So the city of Smyrna was a beautiful city, but it was a city that had been dead and had come back to life. And Jesus says, no, I am the first and the last. I am the one that was dead and has come back to life. And Jesus is writing to the church at Smyrna. Now, let's continue on, chapter 2, verse 9. He says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Those are strong words, aren't they? What does Jesus mean by that? Well, first, what did Jesus know? What's the first thing he said he knew? He knew their what? Their works, their tribulation, their poverty. The church at Smyrna had been working hard for Jesus, but they were in abject poverty. And here's why. For a Christian in the first century in a city like this, it would have been very hard to belong to any trade guild, to have any sort of business, because each of the trade guilds in a city like this that was permeated with idol worship, each trade guild had their patron god. So like if you were going to be a blacksmith, there was a certain patron god of the blacksmith guild. And if you did not worship that god, the rest of the people in the guild took that as an offense and they blacklisted you. They ousted you. They didn't want to have anything to do with you. So for a believer, for a Christian in a city like this that is filled with idol worship, they would have been blacklisted. They would have been blackballed. They would have been outcast. They would have been unable to make a living. But on the other side of that, there was a heavy Jewish population in Smyrna. And the Jews originally, um, well, the Jews were an approved religion of Rome. So when the, Rome, the Romans looked at the Jews, 
they looked at them as a conquered people, but they looked at them as a people that they said, okay, your religion's approved. It's not a threat to us. So you don't have to participate in our Caesar worship, our idol worship. You don't have to do that. They just kind of allowed the Jews to have their own religion. So when Christians first came on the stage, on the scene, when the Christianity was really bursting forth, what we saw in the book of Acts chapter 2, Rome looked at these Christians as just a sect of Judaism. So they thought, oh, it's just kind of an offshoot of one of our approved religions. It's okay. But then Rome began to hear about this King Jesus that these Christians were proclaiming. And this King Jesus that was going to return and establish his kingdom. And so what happened was Rome began to persecute the Christians because they understood that it wasn't just a sect of Judaism. It was something entirely different. And they were worshiping another king. And so what happened was the Jews would also join Rome because the Jews wanted to be separated. They're like, well, we don't want Rome to persecute us. And so then the Jews started persecuting the Christians because they wanted to keep Rome off their back. So to be a Christian in Smyrna was a complicated thing. I mean, you didn't want to worship the false gods. You weren't going to worship the false gods. And so your livelihood was threatened. You were in poverty. And then you had the Jews that were persecuting you to look good before Rome. And you had Rome that started to persecute you because you were worshiping King Jesus. And so that's what's going on in the early church. In fact, we see a glimpse of that with the Apostle Paul. Remember before when he was Saul, what was he doing? He was pictured like a wild animal chasing down the believers, persecuting Christians. He thought it was his obligation as a, a Pharisee, as a Jew, to go and to stomp out Christianity. But here's the weird thing is that they were working. Jesus says, I know your works. I know that you're doing good, but they were in poverty. But also look in Revelation chapter 2-9, what it says, the next thing he says, but you are what? You're rich. So why would Jesus say, but you're really rich? to this group of people that were suffering this intense persecution. How does that go together? Well, look at Matthew 5, verses 11 through 12 for just a minute. Matthew 5, verses 11 through 12. It's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about the different people that are blessed in different ways. In verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you, and they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your what? Reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So even though they were persecuted, even though they were mistreated, even though they were in poverty, Jesus is saying, look, you're rich in at least two ways. You need to remember that first of all, great is your reward in heaven. What's he doing? He's calling them to an eternal perspective. He's calling them to focus on what really matters. The things of this world are fading away. So he's calling them to take an eternal perspective. But he's also reminding them they're not alone. Sometimes when we suffer, we get a poor me attitude because we think everybody's against me. But he's saying, no, 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 no. They're only doing to you what they've been doing to the prophets and those that have followed me for thousands and thousands of years. So they weren't alone in their suffering. Jesus was pleased with the church, even though they suffered. In fact, the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia are the only two churches out of the seven mentioned that Jesus doesn't rebuke. 
He looks at them and he's pleased with them in the midst of their suffering. He loves them. He cares for them in the midst of their suffering. But he doesn't give them an easy road out. And that's a challenge for us to, we're going to look a little bit closer at that today. Let's look at the last half of Revelation 2 verse 9. The last half of verse 9 reads, And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, if you read the book of Romans, it clarifies that God still has a plan for the Jewish people. But there are people that Scripture refers to as Jews who are not Jewish by their nationality, but by faith. What do I mean by that? I mean by that is this. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, he was counted as righteous before God for his what? His faith. He believed God. It was accredited to him as righteousness. And so it was not because of his works, but his works demonstrated his faith. It was his faith that God looked upon and God was pleased with. So with God, he has always had a special people to follow him that he wants to use to make his light known in this world. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in him, then you are a Jew in that sense, not by birth, not by nationality, but by faith. You have been grafted in to the special people of God that God is using to make his name known in this world. And what happens is, if you look at this, and he calls them a synagogue of Satan, there are those that were persecuting the church of God. There were those that were blaspheming the church of God. They were claiming to be Jews, but they weren't. So the words of Jesus are that if you are persecuting my church, you have joined in with hell. Not my words, those are Jesus's. But if you continue on, Revelation 10, 2.10 reads this. He says, do not fear any of those things which are about, you are about to suffer. So here's his instruction to them. This is not a rebuke, this is instruction. These are commands though. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Now look at this. This is a very serious passage. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There are two commands in this verse. The first is do not fear. He's speaking to a church that's being persecuted, and his first command to them is do not fear. Second, his second command is be faithful. Be faithful unto death. And what are they promised? You know, this, when we're talking about verses where we'd go to find a lot of hope, this isn't one of those, you know, you're not going to have this crocheted on your, you know, living room wall right here, right? But what are they, what are they promised? They're promised persecution unto death. Second, what are they promised? They're promised a reward on the other side of the persecution, what did they promise? A crown of what? Of life. Only the one who is dead but is now alive can look at you and say, look, on the other side of death, there is life. Only a believer in Jesus Christ can stare death in the face and say, you are not the end of me. The church at Smyrna they had already been persecuted. They were already in poverty. And what did Jesus promise them? More! 
He said, I know your works, I know your persecution, I know your poverty, and guess what? There's more to come, and in fact, there's more to come to the point that you're going to be tested, you're going to be thrown in prison by Satan, and some of you will die. You're going to spend 10 days in prison, and some people speculate, what does the 10 days mean? I I don't think that we need to make too big a deal about it. The, The text doesn't make it real clear, but we do know in the book of Revelation Numbers like 10 and numbers like 12, they usually stand for perfection or completeness. So I think, this is just me, I think what Jesus is saying is you're going to be thrown in prison for 10 days until the time that I deem it to be completed is done, and and then you'll be released. But some of you will die. And Jesus is saying, and that is a part of my perfect eternal plan. Again, what were Jesus' commands to them? You're about to suffer, you're about to die, but what were his commands? Don't fear, be faithful unto death. Does that seem fair? I mean, there doesn't seem like there's a lot of encouragement in that, at least, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, does that seem, if you're already struggling and there's more to come, does it seem fair for Jesus to go, but don't be afraid and be faithful unto death? It almost seems like a suck it up buttercup kind of message from Jesus. Or you go, why would he say something like that to them? That seems harsh. What's going on with that? I had to reflect on that this week, and here's what I came up with. I think that if we struggle with Jesus demanding this of his church, it doesn't reveal a harshness in Jesus. It reveals how attached we have become to this world. It doesn't expose some injustice in the character of God. It reveals how much we've lost sight of eternity. This isn't the end game. We're just passing through. We are citizens of heaven. The presence of Jesus is my home. This is just a place that I'm staying for a little while. And so if we read verses like that, And we have a hard time with it. Uh, Really, it just reveals how weak our Christianity has become. Because I think what Jesus was doing is he was being a good coach. What does a coach do when it comes down to fourth quarter and the game's gotten hard and people are tired? Does the coach go, well, you've played good for three quarters. We'll just call it a game. No, you'd say he's a bad what? A bad coach. That's terrible coaching. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's being a good coach. He's going, Smyrnans, you've done well. Smyrnans, you're being persecuted. I know it. I know your persecution. I was persecuted. Smyrnans, you're in poverty. I know your poverty. I was in poverty. Smyrnans, I know you're being misunderstood and blasphemed. I know it. I was there. Smyrnans, I know your pain, I know your sorrow, I've experienced it firsthand, I know it. Smyrnans, hold on unto death, because guess what? Just like I died and I rose again from the grave, Smyrnans, I am preparing a victory party for you. So he didn't let them off the hook. He gave them an eternal perspective. And when we have a problem with that, it just reveals how weak we've become. 
But in another nod to the city of Smyrna itself, Jesus promises them what? A crown of life! And so the Greek word that we translate here is crown, it's not actually um, a crown. There are two different, at least two different words for crown. One would be for royalty. That's not the word that he uses here. It's the victor's crown. And they had games like the Olympic Games in Smyrna. They were well known. So when he's talking about you endure to the end and you're going to receive the victor's crown, they knew what that meant. They knew you finish, you finish strong, you win, you overcome, you get the crown. And Jesus is saying, look, you endure to the end. And there's a double meaning there because not only would they receive the victor crown like in the athletic games, as they walked around the city and they saw that crown on the mountain, they could be reminded that King Jesus has so much more in store for me. Endure to the end and you'll receive the crown of life. Man, what a great message from Jesus. But let's go to our last verse and then we'll move to applying it to our lives after we get through verse 11. It reads, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So as with his message to the Ephesians that we saw last week, it's Jesus and the Spirit speaking to the churches. And the message was to what? To overcome, to struggle, to prevail. In the strength Jesus supplied, and realize that as you overcome, the second death will have no power over you. So what's the second death? What does that mean? Well, turn to Revelation 20 for just a minute, and you'll see what the second death is. Revelation chapter 20, commonly known as the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Revelation 20, beginning at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, and whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. You know, people may flap their gums against God now, but there's coming a day when all men will give an account, and they'll be quaking in their boots, and no one will be able to hide. Run their mouths all they want now, but this day is coming. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Talked about that last week. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. To those who put on Jesus, to those who have believed in Jesus unto salvation, you've passed from death to life. This second death has no hold on you. But if you reject Jesus, you still stand guilty before God. And the judgment of God is this. As you have rejected my son, now I have rejected you. And to spend an eternity separated from God is to spend an eternity in hell. So how do we apply this to our life? That's a serious message to the church at Smyrna, isn't it? I mean, that is a heavy passage. So how do we apply this? Well, I have three things. They're going to kind of stair-step. They'll go together. The first, control is an illusion. Number one, control is an illusion. Do you know what an illusion is? Magicians make a living off of this. 
they trick you. You think one thing is happening, but something else is happening altogether. Or maybe in movies, you know, you'll see people that are stranded in a desert, and they're dying of thirst, and the sun is beating them down, and they look in the distance, and what do they think they see? They think they see a pool of water with some palm trees, and it's really a what? It's a mirage. It's an illusion, because they keep moving closer and closer to it, but it seems like it keeps moving further and further away from them. That's an illusion. Look, control is something that we want, but it is an illusion. In fact, we have an unsettling amount of control over our own lives. We really don't want to admit it. But for a believer, true freedom is not gaining more control. It's actually letting go of control and falling more fully into the arms of Jesus. So, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to understand your life is not in your hands anyways. You're already in Jesus' hands. The question is, are you doing this like you're sitting in a hot leather seat on a Texas, you know, summer afternoon? Are you sitting in his hands going, oh, 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 trying to maintain control? Or do we let go like that nice lazy boy on a Sunday afternoon when the cowboys are on and just kind of let it go and relax into the arms of Jesus? You see, if you're a believer, you're already in his hands. The question is, are you fighting him or are you resting in him? The church in Smyrna was doing good things. I mean, they were doing good works. They were being persecuted for their testimony. And what did Jesus uh, promise them? More persecution. So we have to ask, what's the deal with that? Can I trust that God? You're telling me to trust Jesus, to let go of control, to let go of his hands. But to the church at Smyrna, they weren't in control. They were being persecuted. And when they let go into the arms of Jesus, what awaited them was more persecution. But that's the problem. It doesn't stop there. What was awaiting them was not simply more persecution. What was awaiting them was the crown of life on the other side of persecution. So again, we have to get the right perspective. What are we living for? Are we living to try to be controlling everything around us? Are we living to try to be pleased with just the things of this world, satisfied with the things of the world? Are we living in such a way where we really believe this world can be enough? Or are we willing to look beyond the things of the world to the things of eternity and say, Jesus, only you can truly satisfy. Therefore, I let go into your arms. And whether it is persecution or blessing, I know that I'll be okay because I am with you. But you have a choice in that. You see, we must understand that control is an illusion. Number two, death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. Aren't these uplifting points? We're getting to the good one in just a minute. Now look, barring the return of Jesus before you die, death is inevitable is what I mean. I wholeheartedly believe that at any moment Jesus could break the clouds and he could return at any moment and take us home. So I'm not saying anything other than that. But barring the return of Jesus, death is inevitable. Death is coming. So what are you going to do about that? Look, look one more time at verses 10 through 11, and then we're going to get to our third point. Revelation chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Let's just read this one more time. 
Do not fear any of those things which are about, you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Again, apart from the return of Jesus, death is inevitable. But for a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what happens. I close my eyes to this world, and I open them in the presence of Jesus. Now, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? That sounds like something to almost be excited about in a weird way. Now, I'm not advocating any sort of self-harm or anything like that. But I'm saying for a believer in Jesus Christ, there's absolutely nothing to fear in death. Because death is just a way that we go from the pain and the suffering of this world into our eternal joy and reward. Remember what Jesus said to the thief on a cross? The one that believed in him? Today you'll be with me, what? In paradise. Now if Jesus describes heaven as paradise, that should give me something to look forward to, right? And what did the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5, 8? We are confident, yes, well, pleased, rather to be absent from the body is to be what? Present. To be present with the Lord. So the Smyrnans were commanded not to fear in the face of death. Instead, they were to be faithful unto the end, understanding that Jesus, who is the first and the last, had prepared a victory party for them. So we see that death, that control is an illusion, death is inevitable, but third and final, Jesus is life. Control is an illusion, death is inevitable, but Jesus is life. And I mean that the life to come, but I also mean that now. You will truly experience life now to the degree that you are truly releasing control into the arms of Jesus. I want to close with an illustration of the life of Polycarp. So I want to illustrate our point, and I want to tell you a story. You know, as I've been studying through this sermon series for Revelation, it's really been putting me to the test. I have over a dozen commentaries I consult each week. I get in the Greek. I pulled out my second-year Greek textbook this week looking up some stuff. I even did a deep dive this week into some 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century documents called the Apostolic Fathers and was reading uh, about the testimony, the witness of the martyrdom of the death of Polycarp. Now, why was I reading that? Well, Polycarp uh, was, let me actually back up a little bit more than that. Uh, John, the Apostle John, wrote the book of Revelation around AD 95. It was sent to seven churches. Smyrna was one of those churches, right? Okay. John discipled a man named Polycarp. Polycarp discipled a man named Irenaeus. Irenaeus wrote extensively. He also wrote about Polycarp's relationship with John, apostles, and other eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. 
So as John was advanced in age, as he was writing the book of Revelation, as he was about to die, he was the last living apostle. But Polycarp was one of John's disciples. So Polycarp was kind of like the next step, the next link of the early church back to Jesus and the eyewitnesses of Jesus and all that. Y'all with me on that? Polycarp became the bishop of, guess what? Smyrna. Polycarp disciple of John became the bishop of Smyrna, the letter that we've just been looking at. Now here's what also happened. In AD 155, Polycarp was burned alive at the stake. The Jews in the town had excommunicated the Christians. The Jews didn't want to be associated with the Christians because they were afraid of Rome. Rome began calling the Christians atheists because the Christians wouldn't bow down and worship Caesar, who they believed to be a living God. And so the news continued to tighten on the early Christians. The early church persecution arose greater and greater and greater. And this is historical fact. These are extra-biblical accounts. These are historical documents. And I want you to understand the picture that we have here. We have the Apostle John writing the words of Jesus to the church at Smyrna. And here, here's what's going on. As, as Polycarp was burned alive at the stake at A.D. 155 for his testimony in Jesus Christ, he was given an opportunity to recant. The, the local governor said, just deny Jesus and worship Caesar. And, he, and Polycarp said, I have served him for these 86 years, and he's done me no harm. How can I deny him now? That was his testimony. In fact, they were going to nail Polycarp to the stake so he wouldn't jump out of the fire. And he said, no, my love for the Savior will restrain me. You don't have to nail me to the stake. Polycarp loved Jesus. He served Jesus. He gave his life for Jesus. And when he said, these 86 years have I served him and he's not failed me yet. If you do the math, we know for certain that Polycarp was a part of the church of Smyrna that received this letter, the book of Revelation. And there are very good odds that he was old enough to actually be the leader of the church of Smyrna by this time that would have taken the book of Revelation and read it to the church. And so you have Polycarp, the disciple of John, receiving the book of Revelation, reading it. What's the message? Do not fear the things you're about to suffer. Be faithful unto death and you'll receive the crown of life. And what happened years later? Polycarp, taken, putting in the midst of a fire, given the opportunity, recant, this is your last chance. And his response, no, Jesus is my life. And as they lit the flames, Polycarp's life wasn't taken. He simply stepped from this world into his eternal reward. He experienced life far greater than anything we understand. But my friends, control is an illusion. Death is inevitable. But Jesus is life. Not just life to come, but the life that we need now. If you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you may be living, but you're not yet alive. Jesus Christ has a life for you that is beyond what you can even understand in this moment. But if you will turn from your way 
and look to him, believing in him, trusting in him. He has promised to forgive you of your sins, to fill you with his spirit, to truly make you alive. But to reject Jesus will be to stand before God on that day and to receive the second death, to hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who was dead and yet now is alive? And then he turns and he looks at us and he says, don't fear death. In fact, be faithful unto death because on the other side, I want you to picture this. On the other side, Jesus is saying, I have a victory party prepared for you. My friends, that gets me excited. I cannot wait to see. My mom has the gift of hospitality. She was always figuring out ways to throw birthday parties and do things that were a surprise to me. And she got me pretty good. But those parties of experience, maybe you've been to parties for people, retirement parties. Maybe you've been to wedding anniversary parties where you've surprised somebody and they look on their face. And those parties that they so appreciate, those pale in comparison to what Jesus has provided, to what Jesus has prepared, to what Jesus is looking forward to celebrating with his children. Would you please stand with me? My prayer as we close today is that we could be like what the children's were challenged to be, a people that look beyond this world into the things to come, the things of eternity. Not that we're no earthly good because we're so focused on eternity, but I think as we're focused on eternity, we'll be able to live life right. It's when we're so focused on this life that we don't, we don't live it right. We're holding on to it too tightly. We make poor decisions. But it's when I let go of the things of this life, I can actually live. Because I'm living for what's to come. If you've never put your faith in Christ, our invitation is simple. Do so today. Turn from your way. Look to Jesus. Experience his life. Believer, do not fear the things that are to come. Be faithful unto death. And you will receive the crown of life. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. As God leads, you respond. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you're faithful to your word. We pray now that as your word has gone forth, that you would continue to stir our hearts, to move, do what only you can do, and to bring glory to your great name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.